Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Sriram Venkatraman, anthropologist and assistant professor at the Center for IT and Society at Indra Prastha Institute of Information Technology, Delhi. We talked to Sriram about social media, especially Facebook and culture in India, through the lens of his research as part of the Why We Post project. We talk about how different social classes and or genders in India access and form sociality on Facebook. We also cover children, guilt and mothering via WhatsApp. We talk data and ethics on social media and how the project can be accessed by technology developers such as Facebook. Lastly, we cover his perspective on the applied anthropological sector in India. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to the show. Um, we are here today with Sriram. Um, and Sriram, do you mind if you can uh, tell me how to pronounce your name um, in a good way? Yeah, uh, I think you pronounce my name in a very decent way. My name is Sriram. And uh, my last name is Venkatraman. 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> great. Uh, great to have you here with us, Sriram, today. Um, we are very excited to, to be speaking to you about um, all things technology and people and anthropology. But we just want to start with a question that we ask um, almost all of our guests, um, which would be, uh, what would be your definition of anthropology and technology? Technology, uh, technology and anthropology have pretty broad definitions. For example, like in, let me actually start over technology because that's much more easier than defining anthropology. So technology, I think anything that's material that actually helps you or let's say humankind in general to accomplish a certain task, I would actually call it as technology. And uh, the only thing is like technology has a very broad spectrum. It could actually range from the Stone Age tools that we've been using as ancient human beings, or it could actually be the current IoT, the Internet of Things, or whatever it is, or to the even to the future of AI, robotics, anything. And anything that falls in between the spectrum could actually be called as a technology. But anthropology, I think the bigger question here is much more philosophical. Anthropology tries to answer this question of what makes us human. Mm. And I think there's a kind of a celebration in anthropology. It actually celebrates humane, humaneness, like it celebrates humanity. And it actually is like, a bit, but of course, like uh, getting a deeper knowledge of what makes us human in the first place. I think that most subjects don't answer this question of why, and it only answers questions of what, when, who, and where. I think anthropology is one very peculiar, or very, let's say like in a very specific subject that actually goes on to answer questions of why. Mm. And I think there's a lot of empathy that anthropology brings on, which I think sometimes, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to say it's actually missing from the other subjects, but then anthropology is much more empathetic uh, towards its own subjects rather than other subjects that I've actually been exposed to. Yeah, and I just want to let you know, like, uh, the, the only thing that actually makes this as a deadly combination is anthropology and technology. <laughs> See, I think it's because... Uh, you know, as anthropologists, the best thing is like, you know, we've been studying technology that people use for a very, very long time. Mm. So, for example, let's say like, you know, we've, we've also studied technologies, for example, like hand axe. 
and the trapeze, the ancient prehistoric uh, human <laughs> beings using this. We've been studying technology, and that's been we've been doing it for a long time. And the best part is this: we also, even though we don't speak to human subjects, we use hand axe or whatever it is. But then we actually give them a certain context, and we try to build a material culture around them. We build, we try to build the social cultural aspects around the kind of societies that they could have been. Been. I think we make a deadly combination of anthropology and technology. It, it is actually an interesting perspective, right? Because when most people talk, think about anthropology and technologies, like this social science that deals with people and this this sector that deals with everything that is new and um, technological. But but actually, technology is anything that embodies knowledge and and exactly. yeah. And anthropologists have been studying people in their context, which involves any type of relationships that they build with other people or objects or anything. And we have been studying yeah. this embodied knowledge in objects and relationship and social structures forever. So. And unfortunately, Karina, like in since today, what what's actually happening is like in the, people think technology is only computer technology mm. and nothing else. That's unfortunate. So it's like in a very narrow view of what technology is, but. Technology has been there since human beings have been there. And we are interested in human beings and whatever human beings do. So we are interested in, if they did something with technology, we are interested in that. So that's why we have a better spectrum of what people have been doing with technology. We have a historic perspective as well as we also have a contemporary perspective. Yeah, so. totally. And and what has been your personal journey, Sriram, with um, both anthropology and, and technology? Okay, uh, to be really honest, I didn't start off as an anthropologist. I was a hardcore statistician. So I, I did both my master's in statistics and like in, and then I wanted to go ahead and do a PhD in biostatistics. I dropped out after a, few, a couple of years and then I moved on to work for one of the top Fortune 5 companies in the world. And I was the statistician and a labor economist with them. <laughs> so we were doing this. So the best part was that you know, once we were doing this, uh, we were trying to come up with a lot of strategies to actually address their labor concerns and everything else. Mm. But then, again, as I told you earlier, except for a few subjects, not many, not many subjects like anthropology looks into what are uh, why certain things happen. Yes. So we were addressing like in the we were just. So it was more like addressing the symptoms rather than addressing the cause. So I wanted to look at the cause of why things were happening the way that they were happening. So I wanted to move into a subject which actually could actually help me address this kind of a concern. And there wasn't uh, there wasn't much that I could that could actually help me do this, except for anthropology and probably like philosophy. But then anthropology also has an action-oriented item out there. Yeah. So I went ahead and then did my Masters in Anthropology, and because it was much cheaper in India, I came back to India to do a Masters in Anthropology. I, I studied tribal consumer culture, like it's much more to do what what were they doing with the globalized goods and everything else, how how were they buying soaps, and uh, what were they doing with FMCG goods like uh, toothpaste, tooth powder, etc. And then at that point of time, I really started becoming interested in uh, how Facebook was actually using these, uh, you know, how it was actually recommending friends and everyone else. So I wrote a draft paper on how kinship circles could actually be, you know, uh, recommended by Facebook as, you know, the social distance between kins, at least in certain cultures, actually matters much mm-hmm. more friendship uh, than, uh, than the distance that you'd actually hold with a friend. So I wrote this and then like, and I sent it to uh, Daniel Miller because no one else was actually, I didn't, I didn't see anyone else working on technology or very specifically on uh, let's say social networking sites in India at that point of time. 
So even now you have very only a handful of anthropologists in India who actually work on this very seriously. So I sent it to Daniel Muller. So he asked me whether he had a PhD position. He asked me whether I could actually come in and uh, be associated with the YB Post project. Mm-hmm. So I actually then got myself associated, and then I can sense and we've been doing a lot of things from then on. Yeah. So and once I got done with my PhD, so I moved out and uh, I'm back in India right now, I'm working for a uh, working for a uh, institute uh, like in the state government institute, government of Delhi. It's actually called Triple IT. And Triple uh, IT is our in, uh, state government institutes all around India, but then this actually has computer science as a as a foundational base. Mm. So I can say that what I'm working on is the center for IT and society, trying to understand the impact that IT has on society and and the societal impact on technologies in particular. So I've been here. So I've, but my major influences are always like in terms that lies in uh, uh, let's say organizational technology and digital anthropology. So that's been my career journey with all tech and digital anthropology. So it's yeah. like from, from big data to thick data, right? Yeah, now, now <laughs> I should actually say that's a good way of putting my lesson. So, well, I think now I should actually say I'm somewhere in between big data and thick data. Probably like <laughs> I think both of, them, both of them have their own advantages. And I think as researchers, we just need to be conscious of using what at what given point of time. Yeah, and, and don't let the, the number give you the meaning, right? Exactly. Mm. So, and not to also let anthropology, like it's not, it's, thick data is useful in certain scenarios and, and big data is useful in certain other yeah, scenarios. Yeah. I think we should be conscious as researchers to actually start using those mixed methods at some point of time rather than hanging on to, it's not, it's not like, it's not like a political game where you hang on to one side of things. And I think you'll only be seeing half truths if you do that. But you were mentioning Daniel Miller and the Why We Post project. So I was wondering if you can tell a bit more to our listeners about the Why We Post project. Sure. So the Why We Post project is, uh, is something that uh, we, there was a group of anthropologists who actually got together from all around the world. And we, were on, we wanted to study around eight different countries and nine different field sites in all these eight countries, trying to address the impact that social media had on these cultures and to also see how the cultures have actually gone ahead and changed social media mm-hmm. and how they've adopted social media to their own perspective. So what we started doing was like in a sense, uh, these were field sites all around the world, right? We didn't, we didn't uh, sorry to say this, but then we didn't select the U.S. because there's been a lot of studies that's already been done on the U.S. Mm-hmm. So we actually went on to select uh, sites from India, China, two sites from China, Trinidad, Italy, and England and Brazil, Chile and other other countries alike. So, and then what we did was this. So we went ahead and then we stayed in each of these places for around 15 months. So each of each anthropologist uh, went there to their own field site, stayed there for around 15 months, got some data, we came back together and then we wrote a book together. That was called the How the World Changed Social Media. Because what we recognized was even though a lot of people would actually suggest it was more like a technological deterministic suggestion that uh, the world, uh, the technology has actually changed the world. It's actually the world which has actually gone ahead and changed technology. Mm. For example, let's say like in the Twitter, when it actually came to be used in Arab Springs, no one else would have ever, ever, I don't think even Twitter would have even thought that uh, their social media platform is going to be used yes. by people for a political movement. Mm. In the same way, Facebook, like in the, the way that Facebook is actually being used, or I can give you another easiest example. 
you know, social circles. Google Plus actually came up with the idea of social circles. Yeah. Where they thought, like, well, we could actually put people together into social circles, and people might actually go ahead and form their own social circles. But people actually completely rejected it. They didn't want to explicitly form social circles. But then today, in WhatsApp, they actually end up doing the same thing, mm-hmm. but then without, without it being much more explicit. But I think that's, again, the platform of Odin's of what could actually be done with the platform. But then I think it's people adopt technologies to their own cultures, and then they actually end up using it however they wanted to. And there's been a lot of comparative perspectives, even though, like, for example, uh, we have had, uh, we have had uh, some fascinating insights. For example, like in India, we have had illiterates using being on Facebook every single day. And then these are people who actually mediate and then navigate through Facebook by using visual cues as signs. The arrow mark would actually symbolize share. The uh, you know the thumbs up would actually symbolize like. Hmm. And then they are all they, the only the only thing that they do is they actually build sociality out there, and they are able to participate in all these kinds of things. It's only because of the way that they start using social media is going to be completely different from how an educated person actually uses social media. And then uh, there has been a lot of differences in the way that class, uh, social classes end up using social media as well. For example, like in sense you do have uh, uh, in non-English speaking countries, this is something that we actually saw in uh, Turkey mm-hmm. as well as in uh, non-English uh, speaking people would actually be, uh, they wouldn't go onto Twitter because Twitter was actually assumed to be yeah. an English English kind of a, this mm. English platform. So it was like, in, they would actually be much more into Facebook because Facebook was actually seen as a platform for the for everyone. How does this relate to, for example, when you Facebook, you have a platform for everyone and you have this kind of democratic feel to Facebook, but how is it used in societies that are extremely segment, fragmented in terms of class That from your experience? Okay. Like, just to give you an yeah. example from my own, I, I lived in Brazil myself for a few years and I worked for a company that was a direct selling company um, of cosmetics, um, but it was very premium. So it could be that you would have your distributor that gives you money, that gives you the product, uh, be somebody from a really low class, but you, the one that bought the perfume, uh, are for middle class or upper middle class. And I've, I've observed in my own network how people were complaining that their distributors were trying to befriend them on Facebook. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and they really yeah. didn't like that because for them, you know, you stay in your circle, I stay in my circle. That really reinforces what makes both of us different. Um, have you seen something like that from your experience in India in the, with Why We Post? Uh, yes, uh, I've, I've actually seen a couple of different kinds of experiences to what you say, but I'm going to, uh, I'll, I'll give you a scenario of how it's actually being used. For example, you know, like franchisee businesses. Mm-hmm. So let's say like I'm actually owning a saloon, right? Like in sense, so let's say like these franchisee businesses are not supposed to uh, advertise on their own, right? Mm-hmm. They need to actually end up, uh, they actually use a lot of policies from the actual franchisee owner before they actually go ahead and then start advertising on their own. So now normally what happens is like when the franchisees, uh, when the franchisee owner is not able to do it, so he or she goes ahead and tries and friends a lot of people from the neighborhood. And then they actually go ahead and advertise their own franchisee or let's say in this case a saloon or let's say a bakery or whatever it is through through the network, through their own personal networks that they actually build on social media, very Mm -hmm. specific Facebook. So the only thing there is like in the way people actually feel it's impolite to unfriend someone on social media, at least in the area that I that I studied. So these are people who actually use this kind of a social uh, sociality building uh, process or strategy to actually go ahead, friend a lot of 
people from their own area and start advertising to them and start more, much more of a targeted advertising to them, right? Same thing happens with a lot of other housewives too. They actually do this on uh, WhatsApp. So for example, I can say they actually, uh, they do this both on Facebook as well, as well as on WhatsApp. So what they do is they actually friend their entire community. You know, like people live in huge apartment complexes out here. Mm-hmm. So what they do is like friend people from the entire community out there. And what they do is like in sense, uh, uh, but the best part is this, they only friend people from the same social class or let's say a slightly richer, richer kind of people, but then never from the lower socioeconomic class, because the chances of lower socioeconomic class buying your own product is actually going to be extremely low. So now what normally happens is like, in some, uh, and then they go ahead, advertise products that they actually are homemade products, for example, homemade chocolates, homemade snacks, or whatever it is for the neighbors to actually buy it from them. They actually do this over WhatsApp, plus they also do this over Facebook. But with respect to the lower socioeconomic classes, I think, as you rightly said, there is a kind of a distinction that normally happens between uh, the middle classes and the lower socioeconomic classes. For example, let's say I have my own uh, maid who actually works with uh, works for me, and I wouldn't actually try and, uh, it's okay for me to friend, uh, let's say it's okay for me to have a contact with her on WhatsApp, mm-hmm. because there's a functional purpose to that. So she tells me that she's actually going to be late, and I say, okay, that's a functional purpose. If she sends me a forward as a joke, or let's say like, and if she sends me some other kind of a forward, much more of a sociality building process, I'm actually going to be discouraging that kind of a thing. That's the same thing that actually happens with Facebook too. Mm. So it's like in, when someone works for you, and very specifically in this kind of an informal setup, the chances of me unfriending you from Facebook is also pretty high. But let's say like there are people who actually friend them, but then uh, they don't want to unfriend them at some point of time. But then now normally what happens is they are very conscious about whatever they actually put up on Facebook yeah. because they understand whatever I put up on Facebook, the chances are that someone else who's not, who's outside the social circle that I have and who's outside this, uh, who's actually reading this, this kind of a post. Mm-hmm. So that is something that they're very conscious about. So the distinction here happens in different, several different ways. So it's like in sense, uh, it could be for functional purposes. Yeah. It could be for like in sense, and there are people who actually, mm. uh, let's say, like a couple of social media pl- uh, profiles. Because on one social media profile, they might have actually friended people from different social classes. They all together, and the kind of postings that you see on that kind of a social media profile is going to be completely different from another profile that they have, where they actually kind of go ahead and then uh, the kind of sociality that they actually have on that kind of a Facebook mm. profile. This happens at different levels. Yeah. But what is more fascinating here, as Karina, you actually see that there's a gender gender issue that also happens with respect to the social classes. For example, let's say like in lower socioeconomic classes, even having a phone, you might have read this in several different reports about India, and very specifically in the rural India, or let's say in peri-urban India, where even owning phones by women in the family, very specifically unmarried women in the family, is actually discouraged by the family. Hmm. Because the reason very specifically the family discourages, very specifically the men in the family go ahead and discourage this kind of a, a, a woman owning a phone, is because it's actually seen, phones are seen as tools which could actually uh, catalyze a intercaste romantic relationship, right? So this is actually seen as like, that's immediately seen as a big problematic situation because an unmarried woman owning a phone, the chances are you might actually fall into, you know, the romantic clutches of other young men from different, other different Mm -hmm. castes, very specifically from the lower castes 
people out there. So it's like, in the, so this kind of a hierarchy is a problematic, this one in India. So it's like in sense, and the lower, let's say like in the so-called lower class, I don't want to call them as lower classes, but then the, the, the so-called, uh, let's say like hierarchically lower, historically lower cars, they, they like in the, this is a big, big, big issue of, let's say like in sense, where each of them don't see eye to eye, these cars. So they think that uh, women owning a phone mm-hmm. could actually risk this kind of a relationship that could actually happen. Yeah. So now what's happening is, because women are not going to be given phones, that means the chances of them accessing internet is also pretty much minimal. Uh, let's say, like in sense, uh, 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 the chances of rural area women, uh, that two very specifically unmarried women being on Facebook, is extremely going to be extremely low in numbers. And that's again because Facebook or that's seen as a very dangerous kind of medium. Mm -hmm. So if you're to Facebook, the chances are you might actually develop kind of relationships that the family might not be very uh, happy. You know what I I find really interesting is that um, through your examples, you've, you've spoke a lot to how people use the technology to kind of reflect the sociality systems that they have in around them or the purposes that they have uh, around their own systems of sociality. And and yeah. with these examples with the women and the Facebook, it's almost as if it implies that the platform itself does have power to to change existing social systems. Can I just add a caveat there? Like the platform has the, plat- uh, the platform, of course, yes, they do have, they do have the power to change a kind of a person, but then it has to fit into the cultural yeah. Let's say schema of things that people have in their own minds. Yes, yes. If it doesn't fit, they actually throw it out. Mm. So it again, people have their absolute power out here. So. so would that mean that those women, for example, they're already kind of trying to do that anyway, but Facebook would just make that easier? No, what normally happens is these are women who are not uh, given access to these kinds of, uh, let's say, like they're not given access to Facebook at all. Mm. So the only way that, like, in terms of, you, when they actually go to, let's say, like, instance, when they actually go to college, yeah. right? They're given education. When they go to college, they see people from the urban area. They see women from the urban area going, going ahead and being on Facebook. Yeah. And like, instance, they actually understand. Oh, Facebook is something that you could actually have. You know, uh, you know, you could actually build your own networks through Facebook and everything else. Yeah. So what they end up doing it like in a three or four women from the rural area. They combine with the urban area women, like and then they dev- they actually go ahead and then start for uh, they have a profile. Yeah. So they all four women have one profile sometimes. So it's like in sense so a shared network, right? Much more shared network. Like in the, you, there's not one personality behind this mm. this kind of a profile. So it's like four different personalities, and then each of them discuss what to like, what not to, what to share, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they actually go ahead and start doing that kind of a yeah. thing. What's fascinating is, like, in sense, uh, but then when they come back home, they're still not going to be allowed access to Facebook. So it's much more of a stealth access to Facebook while they are out there in the college. But then when they're back home, they're not going to be allowed access to yeah. Facebook because Facebook. But exactly. I mean, um, access to other people, right? Access to other types of contacts that might be from another caste or another. Would would that happen anyway in their lives? Like, could they just go out there um, somewhere to a bar or to a market or even within school um, and kind of form those connections that their family doesn't want them to form? Would that be able to yes. happen outside, uh, without Facebook being there? Uh, yes, 
It can, because like in sense, uh, what normally happens is like in, in villages and everywhere else, at least in the rural areas, urban areas is much more easy to form that, but then in the rural areas, it's much more of a functional kind of a relationship. Hmm. Let's say I go to the market, I buy vegetables, I buy meat or whatever it is, but then it's actually a kind of a business kind of a transaction that normally happens. But then can I have other kind of communication with them other than uh, like in sense, let's say, can I have other kinds of social communication with them? Probably not. Like in sense, and only in certain areas can you, in, in lots of areas you don't. But then like, in the, are women allowed to do that? Very specifically, young unmarried women, are they allowed to do this? Absolutely not. So it's like, in the, they're okay with a, a functional communication, but then no one's going to be okay with you having a social communication. I think that's, uh, that's an offline phenomena that's actually now transferred yes. to Facebook. Yes. So like, in the, you can't do this offline, so you can't do this online as well. Because yeah. online, the people behind this, even though Facebook just mediates communication between two different human beings. But they also yeah. have their own way and methodologies of mediating that communication, right? They have their own systems that decide who sees what and in what time. Um, and given that those people kind of really see the platform as, as something that they appropriate and use depending on their own needs, are they? have you seen them being aware of, of, of how Facebook mediates that communication? Uh, not every uh, like. Uh, let me actually tell you this now. Like, who is actually going to be aware? Who is not going to be aware? Is actually something that depends on the time that they are on uh, Facebook and how much they've understood Facebook and uh, mm-hmm. like. So it again depends on like. In the, for example, the newbies who are just onto Facebook for a, let's say like instead they've just been introduced to Facebook. They're just around six months old on Facebook or whatever it is. They don't normally understand. So it's like you know, there are people, I've actually seen children on Facebook right from the age of 13, or even less than 13 actually, the, the mothers and fathers who work in the IT communities and IT society, like in IT companies, uh, because both of them work, they actually give their child uh, and they allow them to be on Facebook to play games from the age of 8. By the age of around 12 or 13, they pretty much very clearly understand how Facebook actually does this, right? But then you might actually have someone from, a, let's say, like in the lower socioeconomic community at the age of around 25, 26, they would have just got onto Facebook, they don't understand what it is. And, like they, and the way that they see things and everything else also is completely different. So it's, again, dependent on how many, like it depends on education, it depends on how much time have you been on Facebook, it depends on like and the number of friends that you have on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Let's say that someone, I've actually seen people in my field side only having two friends on Facebook, and both of them are their family. So, and I've seen people having around, let's say, like 2,000, 2,500 friends on Facebook too. So, it again, it again, like these are 13 year old children who have around 2,500 friends on Facebook. That's fascinating. And, like, in sense, so it again depends on uh, education, the class that they are in, at what level they are in, and for them to even recognize that Facebook is also, it also has, or let's say, for that matter, Facebook or whatever social networking site you're on. That also has a say on what you're viewing and what you're actually thinking and the kind of actions that you perform on social networking sites. So making it much more, let's say, foundational for them to even know that they have an agency and Facebook has a structure and how they actually, you know, mm-hmm. play along with it is something that actually comes out of their own practice of Facebook and being on Facebook for a longer period of time rather than age-related factor yeah. or anything else. Yes. So. so it's kind of maybe connected to their digital literacy with Facebook? Uh, yes, you can actually say digital literacy with Facebook and the kind of friends that they move on with as well. So, for example, like in sense, let's say my friend is also uh, pretty much at the same level as me. So mm-hmm. it's like in sense, 
or in, uh, they know only so much. Say it again, depends. It's not only their own phys- digital literacy, it also depends on their friends' digital literacy yeah. and the people that they orient themselves in the offline lives as well. So, Have you seen that different in the other markets that you guys have studied? Yes. Uh, for example, let's say like in sense, uh, uh, I think uh, uh, the easiest example would be like in sense uh, in, uh, in England, let's say like 13-year-old school kids, uh, general public school kids who are using Twitter, they use it for a completely different reason. For example, like the 13-year-old kids in India, they don't use Twitter at all. So it's like, again, uh, the 13-year-old kids in India studying in international schools use Twitter. 13-year-old kids studying in India and public schools don't use Twitter because no one else uses Twitter in their own area. Hmm. So it's like, in, they actually said, so again, depends on the way that 13-year-old kids in, the, in England, the way that they use Twitter is going to be completely different from how it's actually being used in India because because of the digital literacy here in India and public schools. Mm. But their awareness and enforcement of their own agency and literacy that comes with time. So that kind of process, um, have you seen it similar in all the markets? Uh, I, I think... Um, I think I would actually say very uh, yeah it does it definitely is similar in several in several places. For example, I could, the immediate example that I could think of is Turkey. Turkey and India seemed very similar in, in their culture, and uh, this is something I can very uh, yeah Turkey and India are very similar in their culture, like in sense with respect to this kind of a digital literacy. I think uh, probably because China's uh, social media profiles and everything else is completely different. That's slightly different, but then like in at least. Uh, Elisabetta, who actually studied Turkey and India, you know, very specifically, I could uh, definitely say with respect, at least with respect to gender, you do see this kind of a digital literacy issue and everything else. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you is once you start using the social platforms and you start communicating through it with people, embedding it into your life, you you place a lot of your own self somehow in, into it, uh, either through te- through actual words or pictures or videos. So you kind of have like a digital identity footprint inside that little platform uh, that grows with, with the use. Um, and I was wondering this kind of like ownership of that information and um, what are the ethics of that information once the person that holds that profile, something happens to them or they want to change something. Can you speak a bit to that? India does not have, like, until very recently, the kind of laws and everything else with respect to people putting up things on social networking sites and other people actually going and using those kinds of information has been pretty sketchy. Like, and no one knows what to do with this. And to be very honest, in India, like, in terms of you're going to be studying social media profiles or, let's say, like, in terms of any kind of social networking sites. And uh, even today, people would ask you, like, should I, should I have an ethics committee constituted? Mm-hmm. Have an IRB board constituted, like in Zimbabwe, we actually get their permission before we actually go ahead and do this. That people who actually use other people's social, I know, like in there has been research in India where people actually use other people's social media <laughs> and social networking site information without even getting their consent, mm-hmm. and those challenge to that. But then the same thing will not apply somewhere like in, uh, let's say, in the US or in Canada. For example, like in so let's say let's say I'm trying to analyze someone's social media profile, right? Mm-hmm. Now, trying to analyze their social media profile, I would actually see likes by yes. different people on their like in let's say I'm putting up a post and I have around 150 people liking my post or whatever happens. Now, the best part is when I'm analyzing, maybe this person who actually put up this post is my informant mm-hmm. and trying to 
analysis of her social media profile and I download all the likes that they've actually got from their friends. I've downloaded all the comments that they've got from their friends and everything else. But then the issue is if I don't take the permission of their friends because they were the ones who commented or liked on my social media profile, the problem that actually comes in is that's not ethical in Canada. Right? Mm -hmm. So I need to I need to not only take the permission of the informant, but I also need to take the permission of someone else who's actually the informant's friend because they have actually liked on their profile because that also talks to their tears and their likes and the and, and who decides that what is ethical so and what is not? That, <laughs> okay. Now, that's a fascinating subject to talk to. Like in the, I know like IRB boards, uh, the institutional review boards, they decide on a few of these things. Like in the, it's extremely difficult. Like in the one IRB decision, probably like what I decide in the US and Canada, probably might not be applicable in India. So I know like in the, there are regulations, of, a law decides a few things, and but then like in the... Been, for you to research something versus for you to start using it for the purpose of law is completely two different things. So let's say like someone someone actually sues you, like in sense, why did you use my information or something like that? And probably that's where the law comes in and then we need to be a lot more, yeah. So again, are we speaking about legality or are we speaking about the intention of using your, using information in a completely different way? Mm -hmm. So it's like in the ethics of intention are yeah. completely different the ethics of legality here. Yes. So, so again, legally, you might not be allowed to do a few things, but then there are people who actually do it. My intention, at least in India, there are people who actually do this, like in the way my intention is completely different and this is why I use this, right? So, but what is fascinating is with this, uh, what's happening with the RR number and everything else coming in, which is very similar to the social security number, What's uh, with Indian government being uh, introducing that now? People have actually started waking up, and now people have started talking about both the ethics of intention mm -hmm. plus the issues as well. So now I think as we go on into the future, we might actually have a completely different set of ethical norms, ethical laws, and everything else being constituted. But right now, it, at least in um, let's say like an Indian scenario, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Now. Can, I, can my information now, does that necessarily mean that my information can or cannot be used by other people? Uh, the only thing, I, to be really honest with you, I think a lot of people use other people's information without their own consent. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. I think, I think we're going to be using it for any purpose, uh, like, let's say, like for business purposes or for research purposes. You definitely need to get other people's consent because, like, it is it is their information, it is their profile. Uh, like, in whatever intention you might be using it for, probably for good, for good things, for bad things, or whatever it is, please get yeah. their consent. So we're basically doing that anyway. Also, outside Facebook is not something that it's uh, generated or started with social media, right? I think that's being done. Like, uh, that has to happen outside Facebook. That uh, that actually has to happen with any kind of research, yes, any yes. kind of uh, any kind of data that you've been using. And yeah. digital data is becoming a part of our own life. So it's like in the you have to. That is human yeah. beings' data. So it's not like a, a, uh, not like a robot on artificial intelligence data that exists out. That's your data. So you definitely people need to ask you. There's a lot of conversation that we've seen in the mass media around restricting your kids' use of Facebook because, or social media in general because it might have some extremely bad uh, impacts on the development of said child. And there's also discourses around, you know, you keep them in, in social media, um, you, are not prevent, you are preventing them from enjoying the real life that is outside. 
um, and also not kind of giving the the kid the agency to um, to use the platform to their own sense of self and sociality, which is basically what you've been talking so far um, with the experience of why we post. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit to these discourses. Yeah, but with respect to the kids, uh, I think this has been like in terms of, uh, this has been another big area of uh, let's say like in a lot of warring factions on both the sides. So I think I think I would actually adopt some something like a neutral circumstance because I'll, I'll actually again I'm going to bring in a few examples from my own field side to actually talk to you about this. So let's say like in the, you have both the, I have had numerous inter, uh, like in the interactions with several families where they both the, both the parents end up working, right? Mm-hmm. So there are kids who actually go, like in the, they give it, the kids are given smartphones. Now the best thing that actually happens is, how do the, how do the mother and the father check on the kid? Like, you know, the, both of them are working, they have to do it because now they've actually gone into the newer middle class that, uh, like, you know, like in the, the new upper middle class or the rising middle classes. Now they have to, at some point of time, ensure that the kid is safe at home or whatever the kid is doing in school. So now what normally happens is like the kid is actually given a smartphone and they are always checking on the kid through WhatsApp. I've actually had young mothers, very young mothers, who have actually just gotten married, but then they have to return back to work, right? Now they, and uh, not, not just got married, but they're like, uh, they got married and then they've just had a child and probably this is their first child and then they actually go back to work. So they leave the child with either a caregiver or like in some, let's say, with their own mother, the child's grandmother. Now they're at work. Now how do I know what my kid is actually doing at home? There's a lot of feeling of guilt that actually goes ahead and then there's lots of guilt that actually happens in mothers and fathers who actually both have double income earning families. Now, normally, that is, again, historically very specific in India because, like, in sense, in India, you actually have mothers at home, stay-at-home mothers, and you've always had the fathers going and working. But then, like, in sense, now with the newer middle class coming up, with both of them working, so in order to assuage my guilt, I actually give uh, you know, the interaction that I have with my newborn, like, let's say, like, if it's, a, it's a, like an infant, mm-hmm. the way that I actually have an interaction is only over WhatsApp. I actually get on a Skype. I actually have interaction with the newborn over WhatsApp. It's mothering over WhatsApp, mm-hmm. right? So, so it again, depends on the families. Now, let's say that there are families with around 13, 14-year-old kids where their parents actually blame the teachers at schools because, uh, because they feel that the teachers are the ones who should have actually made sure that these kids are not on Facebook or not on any kind of social network. But the, the teachers in schools actually go ahead and blame the parents at home. Now, what is fascinating is this. In middle classes, again, upper middle class and middle classes, social media, as you rightly said, is actually seen as a dangerous platform for kids to be in, right? It's, it's actually seen as, oh, why do we actually go, have kids on social media? Like, should, this be, should they be disallowed or disengaged from social media? Should they actually do other things and everything else? Now, this is actually also seen as something that actually deviates or like in the, they, it takes them away from their own education. It's actually seen as a distraction to education. Mm-hmm. By the way, lower socioeconomic classes, you actually, they see social media as an expression of intelligence for their own children. Mm-hmm. They want their kids to be on social media because so they've never been on social media. When they see their kids actually on social media, it's actually, it's seen as an intergenerational attainment. Mm-hmm. What I was able to do, my kid is actually able to do. It's actually on social media. It's actually interacting with the entire world through social media. So I'm actually extremely happy. 
Mm-hmm. And even schools, which actually have, uh, let's say, like lower socioeconomic kids, the teachers and schools actually go ahead and they encourage children to be on social media because it's actually seen as something that's, uh, you know, like in the, that's symbolic of me moving ahead or like it's seen as a symbolism of social mobility. But then if at all upper middle class kids or let's say, you know, when these kids are on social media, it's actually seen as them being distracted from what they are supposed to do. Now, what is fascinating is the same discourse that actually comes out of people who actually say that social media is actually dangerous mm-hmm. for kids. I've actually seen international schools in India go ahead and create their own social media inside a school. It's a very specific school social media, right? Mm-hmm. So they say, why do you get onto Facebook? Or probably even before you get onto Facebook, probably get onto our own social media. So we'll actually train you on how to actually go ahead and interact with uh, with people on Facebook. So it again, it again depends on which <laughs> it again depends on which class we are talking about. It depends on which side of uh, who disco who has this kind of a discourse on children. Uh, I think these kinds of discourses are again coming in from middle class people or mm. probably like up people. The lower socioeconomic class people don't think so. So it's like completely different. Have you guys have with why we post um, any expressed interest from Facebook of of using or applying any of the this knowledge that you've generated? So you're asking if Facebook as a company has uh, requested us yes. about this? Mm-hmm. No, no. So I don't think, uh, one of the other things, like, I don't think we also contacted Facebook for anything, but then like, they haven't contacted us for anything. Like yeah. That, so. Do you see any um, any value in, in, a, in that kind of a connection? I do see a lot of value in that kind of a connection. I think they should actually, because that actually tells them about how their media is actually being used, how their platform is actually getting used by people. Because right now, it's not like, in sense, uh, I think there shouldn't be any kind of technological determinism, but even though the studies in HCI and everything else mm-hmm. might actually tell you, like, oh, this, this is how your technology is actually being used. But what's fascinating is the difference between anthropology and HCI, which the human-computer interaction is. HCI places technology at the center. Yeah. Anthropology places human beings at the center. Mm-hmm. So you should understand, because right now you'll... you'll if you start placing only technology at the center, now what's going to happen is human beings not only use Facebook, they also use other other things, right? They also use other different kinds of social media platforms. If you study human beings and the kind of technologies or the social media platforms that they use, now what's going to what's going to be fascinating in this kind of usage is you would actually understand the entire entire spectrum of how they actually end up using things. You won't be blinded by all these blind spots that you'll actually have by just placing technology at the center. Yeah. So I think they should definitely understand it's not only about how their platform is being used in a culture, mm-hmm. it's also to see how their platform fits in between all the other platforms and how people use other platforms instead of Facebook for certain kind of communications. Yeah. So if, if let's say somebody from Facebook is listening to us, like a product manager or somebody working in their development team, um, what would you advise them to, to do to kind of start... Um, unpacking um, all of this data that you guys have generated? I think the easiest thing for me to do would be like ask them to contact us. So mm-hmm. it's like any of us in the team, like in the because I think all of us would be, uh, we really want to ensure like in the, this knowledge reaches the product manager as well. Right? But then like in the, we should also see what their priorities are. Mm-hmm. For example, like companies have different kinds of priorities. For example, uh, let me actually give you a very solid example here. 
you know, people, I, I know like in some lots of companies have started investing on this emerging economy technologies. So for example, let's say like in, in India, where they actually speak about these emerging technologies and technologies very specifically oriented towards emerging economies. For example, let's say like in the, how does, uh, if I have people, uh, uh, should I, should that be a different kind of, you know, people don't use Facebook, uh, they don't, they use Facebook not only in English, but then they also use Facebook in their own languages. Mm -hmm. So should they actually go ahead and then start localizing? I wouldn't even, probably sorry for using this kind of a management term, but then like mm -hmm. since it's not a globalizing or whatever it is, it's much more of localizing technologies. So how do I localize technology? How do I globalize, like instance, and then these are people who use it for very different purposes. So it's like, in the, how do I make it much more centered towards people who don't use Facebook? Mm. Uh, let's say, like in they they complete, they just don't use Facebook for um, any other thing other than just viewing videos. Mm. Like, how do I actually make sure, like in I, uh, I help people use Facebook in non-English speaking languages mm. and very and like in the how do how does it actually speak to their own dialects and whatever it is but what is much more fascinating is how do i you know like this is this is like really fascinating uh, yeah facebook at the end of the day actually makes us money by selling advertisements or whatever it is right mm -hmm. how do i localize my advertisement because right now when i see advertisement let's say like you know, there's a guy from a little lady who actually watches these facebook advertisements but then it's there are two different kinds of advertisements. One is like online shopping. That's wonderful. That's amazing because there are lots of people who just love online shopping and everything else in the rural area too. But then if I have to get into some sort of a shop to buy on my own products, uh, like in the, why am I advertised for shops and everything else which are not even in my area? Yeah. Should I not be advertised for shops which are in my area? So it actually makes it much more local, locally available where I can actually go and access these mm. kinds of things. Yeah. And why, and why are my advertisements not in Tamil? Yeah. Why are my advertisements in Hindi? Why are these advertisements only in English? I can't even read a single word of what it says. Yeah. So why do I have these advertisements coming up? So and to localize all these things and like, you know, to understand their own shopping patterns. Yes. So yeah. There's lots of things that they can do. Hundreds, hundreds yeah. and hundreds of things. That that is great, and we're gonna put all the links down um, in the in the podcast episode where, where where with where they can find you guys. One last question before we wrap up because the time is kind of running super short. Um, in your experience working in India, back in India now, um, have you seen um, companies in the ITC sector employing social scientists? What is your experience yeah. with that? Now this is again another. Okay, now ethnography has become the new sexy word, right? <laughs> like everyone like, oh, I'm an ethnographer and I'm an ethnographer. How do you, you do ethnography? I just do it for half an hour a day. So it's like done. So <laughs> there are people actually, ethnography is right now the, after big data, I think ethnography is much more of a most abused term. So it's like, I've actually seen a lot of design firms using ethnographers and you don't necessarily need to be a social scientist or a uh, anthropologist or whatever it is to be an ethnographer. Yeah. Anyone can now be an ethnographer. Uh, and uh, the other thing is this, uh, lots of lots of ICT companies have actually started. For example, let's say in emerging technologies, HCI, emerging technologies and HCI, uh, they've started employing a lot of anthropologists and social scientists to actually do ethnography for them. Mm -hmm. So it's like to understand how technology could actually, uh, how certain technologies are used by people. Uh, other than HCI and uh, this one, I've also seen a few people starting to employ design and design and design space. People have started employing ethnographers, and this happens all all over India. But what is fascinating is you have all these market research companies 
also doing a lot of ethnography. And then they actually end up working, they end up doing market research for technology companies as well. And, and they actually use a lot of ethnography as well. So it's like, I've seen these three different areas which have actually started employing social scientists and very specifically anthropologists to actually end up doing ethnography. But then other than ethnography, what else are they employed for? Probably interviews and focus group discussions. But other than that, I haven't seen anything else happening. But then what's fascinating is a newer kind of, let's say like computational social sciences, which might actually emerge in India as something which is very strong, could actually end up using a lot of mixed methods both uh, use both big data and to have a much contextual understanding, they might actually end up using ethnographers and social scientists. Hmm. So it's kind of a, a kind of an opening of the environment somehow in a hybridization of um, of the practice, right? It's a hybridization of the practice, but like it's uh, uh, ICT again. The problem is, as a social scientist, you're only seen as being useful for HCI kind of a thing, mm-hmm. right? So that's a problem. Social scientists can be useful for much bigger things. For example, like in Sinai, I think social scientists should also be hired as product managers. Social scientists should also be hired as uh, tech evangelists. Social scientists should also be hired as, uh, you know, like, uh, let's say, community managers, tech community managers, which I think I've seen that happening in the uh, Western countries, very specifically in the U.S., but I haven't seen that happening in India. How many tech evangelists do you have in India? You do just don't have any tech evangelists in India, so... And very specifically, how many social scientists are tech evangelists? Not many. Yeah. Because, they, they, because I think social scientists could also be a lot more strategic, and they could actually add a lot more value than what the companies think that they can add, and more than what the social scientists think that they can actually have. Oh. But they also need to have their own skills developed as well. So. Yeah. That is an awesome point to end this amazing conversation on. Um, thank you so much, Sriram, for being with us today. Wonderful, Karina. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.